Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Today, David Cariani is interviewing Chris Hyman. David, good morning. Good morning, Eric. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm I'm excited. This is the first chance I've gotten to meet Chris. We were talking a little bit before the recording started. Why did you bring Chris on the show today? Well, I brought Chris on. He is a senior case designer with our insurance department and has some interesting things to talk about as far as an alternative solution to a fixed income in today's environment. So I'm excited to have him on here and share what he has learned with our audience. Chris, if you could give us a little bit about your background, that would be helpful. Yes, thank you. I live in Wilmington, Delaware, actually, which is about 3,000 miles away from the Centura home office. I always get jealous of the San Diego weather report out there, but uh, that's okay. But um, no, to give a give a little bit of my or give a little bit more about me. I was I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. I went to the University of Delaware, where I majored in accounting, and I've been in the financial industry since really 2007, with a focus on life insurance for the past eight years. The previous firm I worked at before joining Centura was a member firm of M Financial Group, which is re insurance and distribution company of life insurance with about 155 member firms countrywide. And with that firm, I really learned the ins and outs of the business. We focused on uh, a lot of a lot of life insurance solutions for estate planning. And my main role there was to design solutions, you know, design life insurance solutions for uh, different needs. I did a lot of competitive pricing analysis and a lot of uh, estate planning analysis there. We also dabbled in executive compensation planning. So but look, in November 2020, I had a chance to join this insurer team and really haven't looked back. And it's been a great experience. The comprehensive planning that this firm does is very unique in the industry. It's like nothing I've ever seen. And it's just it's just been great. It's been great to come aboard and soak up a bunch of this knowledge. Very, very uh, happy to be here. We're, we're thrilled to have you, Chris. And let me say, we've been able to reap the benefits right off the bat with you joining the firm and the, and the project that you've been working on. So you know, let me just sort of set the stage why we're why we're talking is that the issue with the bond market today is that historically bonds have been used to offset portfolio risk that comes from equities. And, and there's the, that sort of classic seesaw when one goes up, the other goes down. And we're looking at an environment as we go forward where that may not be the case. We're seeing equities at high levels and we're also seeing bond prices at high levels because the yields are so low. In fact, the yields have been coming down for 30 years, which has created a great run for bonds historically as their prices have continued to go up. But now we're at a point where when you look forward, it's just not that exciting. The returns are sort of dismal. We're looking at rates at, at lifetime lows, not much lower to go. And the, the fact that basically fixed income is not going to provide you that downside protection or much of an absolute positive return as it has done over the past 30 years. The Fed is starting to rumble about potentially stopping some of their quantitative easing policies and buying bonds. And we know that inflation is going to be picking up here. So there's a lot of concern about rates rising. And if rates rise, you could take those tiny yields that bonds have right now and wipe them out with a, a negative return on the actual price of the bond that may be a, a larger negative return than the actual yield you're getting. So you may be looking at a total return that's negative on bonds on a go forward basis. From a portfolio design standpoint, we have been you know, looking for alternatives to 
replace or augment a classic fixed income allocation. And Chris, that's a project that I know you've been working on um, quite a bit and had some, some very exciting and fruitful results. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You hit the nail on the head. The negative skew of bond investment has increased. So there's decreased upside and you know, greater downside. We've definitely sought out uh, potential alternative solutions to bond allocation. We want a solution that limits the downside exposure while having the potential for increased upside return. And we landed on a great alternative, which is life insurance, and in particular, a style of index universal life insurance that's designed to cater to this need. How do we land upon this, or how do we land upon life insurance as a potential replacement vehicle? Well, to gain insight into a very similar strategy, we can look at banks, and in particular, something that's called BOLI. So with uh, bank, and, and uh, that stands for bank-owned life insurance. And basically banks have been doing this style strategy of utilizing life insurance as a tax-efficient investment tool and replacing some of their low-yielding investments really since the early 80s. This is classified as an asset on the bank's balance sheet. So the transfer of funds to the life insurance is balance sheet neutral. And what, what they're permitted to do is they're allowed to invest up to 25% of their tier one capital, which is their safest capital, into life insurance and into these bully products. And to give an idea on how popular this is within the banking industry, if we look across the entire industry, roughly 64% of banks own some percentage of bully. Just off top, I'll give a few examples. Based on data as of December 2020, Bank of America held roughly 22 billion in bully. Wells Fargo held roughly, I want to say, 19 billion in Boli, and PNC Bank held roughly 9 billion in Boli. The banks are into this. Typical returns in this Boli space are two to th are in the two to three percent range, and there's also downside protections. There's a minimum gross interest rate that the policy performance can't dip below. They only select top-rated carriers. So if we're if we're boiling this all down to why do banks ultimately do this? Uh, the, the number one glaring reason, as already mentioned, is to replace low yielding investments with a product that provides a greater return, is liquid and is and is safe. And then we can just, if we just look at the you know typical advantages of life insurance in general, you're gonna get tax deferred earnings. So there's no taxation on the growth of underlying assets. You get a step up in basis at death, which translates to tax-free death benefit to the beneficiary, which in the case of Boley, that would, that would be the bank. You have access to policy cash value via loans and withdrawals. There's no recognition of gains on trades or when switching investment options within the policy. And in the case of Boley, there's zero surrender charges. So there's not an additional charge just for surrendering the contract and taking the cash value. There's, there's no penalty for that. So really the main question is why we, we asked ourselves, why wouldn't the same strategy of replacing low yielding investments by utilizing life insurance that banks have done for you know just under 40 years, why wouldn't that be applicable to the individual retail marketplace? So this is not a novel concept. This is something that the largest financial institutions in the country have been utilizing for years, nearly half a century. That is that is correct. I guess the trick that you're trying to solve for is to is to create this for an individual investor as opposed to a large institutional investor. Is that the challenge that you've been presented with? That is that is definitely the challenge that we've been that we've been presented with and finding a carrier and product where we can design that's that you know specific policy to cater to those needs. And there's certainly you know, there's and there's some parameters that we have to hit, obviously. When you say life insurance, it makes you know people jump to certain preconceived notions. Can you explain <clears throat> what kind of policy this is that would be applicable for an individual to replace a bond as a 
part of their portfolio? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. First, well, I think it's important to note first and foremost that even though this is life insurance, this isn't a traditional life insurance play. It's, it's, it's an investment strategy with the added value of having a death benefit. So the death proceeds are really secondary and the life insurance policy functions as a Swiss army knife in that regard, where the primary goal is cash and the secondary goal is the, is the death proceeds, which would go to a uh, beneficiary. So when people, I think to answer your question, when people typically think about life insurance and cash value, they think of tied up money to a degree, whether they're doing a protection strategy where, where it's low premium and high death benefit is the focus or in more of a, uh, cash accumulation strategy where high premium and low death benefit is the focus. I think people generally think if I want to pull my money out early, there's going to be some sort of penalty to, to uh, do so. The other preconceived notion is on policies that aren't directly tied to fixed income performance or that don't have a guaranteed component of cash or death benefit. I think that people in general might think that the downside is too great for an insurance product. But I'd say what makes this style contract different is it checks the following three boxes that are really very, very difficult to check all at once. It's not common. That is downside protection. So there's a minimum guaranteed cumulative growth performance that the contract can't dip below. There's liquidity, so there's access to funds with zero penalty. That means there's that means there's no surrender charges in terms of timing to take money out. It's a typical three to five day turnaround. You can get you can get your money out, and after year one, the cash value equals 100% of the premium paid in plus whatever return is earned. And and the third one is is upside potential, attractive returns relative to investments with with a similar risk profile. So this style policy that we're talking about, this strategy hits all of these markers, which again is, a, was, is very unique in the insurance industry to be able to hit that trifecta. Those are certainly attractive features. There's no doubt about that. Can you explain how a policy like this works? I absolutely can. And hopefully I don't get too in the weeds with this. So pull me out if I do, David, please. We'll be sure to do that. <laughs> Well, first it should be noted again that we're talking about an index universal life policy type. A way to summarize this and one of the most commonly coined phrases for IUL, as it's called in short, is that it provides downside protection with you know, upside potential. So number one, as we're you know, designing this, we're, we're gonna be maximizing the funding in the contract based on the amount of premium that the client wishes to allocate. So the premium is just gonna be the cash investment going into the policy. What this means is we're minimizing death benefit as close as possible to that to that premium amount in order to lower the drag of the policy charges with a, with an investment it's the drag normally is tax drag or some sort of maybe asset management fee that's being applied that's cutting into that return so with life insurance it's typically the policy charges we want to minimize that by lowering the death benefit as low as possible so that's number one number two is there's basically two main investment choices to select from within this policy type. You have an indexed account and you have a fixed account. So with the indexed account, which is the most commonly used within this policy, within an IUL, the performance is derived from the movement of an underlying index over a specific time frame. We tend to allocate to a one-year indexed account where performance is tied to S&P 500 movement over, over that year. And that's subject to a cap and a floor. So you're protected on the downside with the floor rate. It's typically 0%, but the caveat is you're capped on the upside. To give a very brief example of that, let's say the S&P goes up 20% during a particular policy year and the cap rate's 9% at the time. This means the policy would earn 9% less charges. If the S&P were to go down now 15% in a year, 
then that downside protection comes into play. So if the floor rate is 0%, which it typically is, then the policy would earn 0% less charges. Now let's say it goes somewhere in between. It earns 7%. You're gonna get 7% less charges. Now the charges are deducted monthly from the account value, just to, just to note that. And then if we're, if we're talking about the fixed account, which is again, the other investment type, that's gonna invest in the general account of the carrier, which is comprised of a, really a blend of fixed income instruments and mortgages. And that account earns a stated crediting rate determined by the carrier and has a guaranteed minimum crediting rate associated that it can't dip below. So also I think, I think it's important to note with the index account that it doesn't credit until after one year, whereas the fixed account credits monthly. Well, so I think from a portfolio design perspective, something that has a cap on it certainly doesn't concern me when you're talking about the kind of downside that you're acquiring through that same investment, through that same investment. Nine, eight, seven percent cap on something that has no downside is a pretty attractive risk reward. If you compare that to bonds, right, you're looking at significant potential negative returns on a go forward. And on the upside, you're looking at maybe a cap of 2%. Absolutely. No, I think that's a great way to put it. The capping the performance is worth it because we got to look at the similar investment style. I mean, if you, if you, if you want the higher potential for, for our returns, you're not going to get the same downside protection. So it's, it's, it's really that trade-off is what we're talking about here. And, and just, to, just to give an idea on the index account on and, and this particular style strategy on what you could expect to earn per annum, it's going to be anywhere roughly between 1% net and 6.5% net of uh, charges if you're allocated 100% to the index account. For the fixed account, you can you know, it's going to be 2% 2, 2 net of charges currently, and you can allocate between both. You don't have to go 100% into one, 100% in the other. You can go 50% in the fixed, 50% in the index, or any blend of allocation that, that you choose to do. Let me key in on something you just said there. So you, for, for an index investment in here, you're saying that the low end of potential returns is somewhere around a percent and the high end is maybe six and a half percent now if i'm looking at that as something that i a tool that i can use to replace fixed income in the portfolio we're talking about sort of a one-year time frame here i'm comparing that to to a t-bill or a one-year treasury bill which today is yielding six basis points or 0.06 percent six one hundredths of a percent is what i will earn over the course of a year 10 times that is still less than what you're saying the minimum earnings would be on the index account. And 100 times that is closer to what you're saying would be the maximum that would be earned in this account. That's what struck me is I'm looking at this saying, look, on the low end, I earn 10 times treasuries. And on the high end, I earn 100 times treasuries. How do I ignore that? And this is an investment with, with no downside it's got a guaranteed floor that's it's absolutely yeah, it's absolutely true and that's and that was the goal was to find find a similar risk profile with 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 increased return potential yeah it's a great that's a, um, a great analogy there with the uh, one-year treasury another i feel another point in terms of how this policy works is i want to touch on the downside protection for a second so there's a cumulative minimum policy growth rate um, and what this means is that the there's there's a minimum that the account value will earn net net of charges which we covered is roughly roughly one percent but but what this means is if so let's say after three years the s p has been negative each year right so you're getting that zero percent floor each year 
the carrier will true up the policy to earn the minimum growth rate less 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 the charges obviously and so which 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 roughly equals that that one uh, percent once you once you net out the charges so rather than that zero percent floor rate each year you're going to get that that minimum cumulative growth rate another factor is you also have access to cash value via policy loans and or and or withdrawals and there's the there's the liquidity aspect of it with zero surrender charges all right well let's yeah let's let's talk about that a little bit how would an investor get their money out that's always a concern when you know you're putting money into an investment you want to know what's the exit so how does someone get their money out of this there's two ways and they're both available from day one you can do a policy loan or you can do a withdrawal let's talk about the loan first so if you're taking a policy loan from the policy you're you're obviously keeping the policy in force typically it's when the need for money is temporary the net death benefit is going to go down based on the amount of the loan taken but you have the ability to put the money back in and then the death benefit would go back up there's an interest rate assessed which can you know which you can accrue so the loan will get larger as interest builds or you can also pay interest out of pocket so the loan type stays level and there's also this is beyond this really the scope of this conversation there's different loan styles too that can cater to the client's kind of uh, needs there and then the other type is a policy withdrawal that's a more permanent distribution of the policy and that's when you don't plan to put the money back in and the death benefit will reduce permanently by that withdrawal amount but yes, you can uh, you can definitely get your money out starting day one. It's not recommended to do it starting day one, but you can certainly do it with zero surrender charges. Well, that certainly does qualify as a liquid investment. I can understand how you know, the banks get to treat it as a as a liquid investment on their end if if those are the characteristics. How how would we expect a policy like this to perform? Based on hypothetical backtesting, the expected return is going to be anywhere from 3 to 4% net of charges. That's assuming you don't surrender the contract too early, such as after one year, obviously, because within any given year, the S&P can have a downswing. Or, but, you know, if, if you stay in the contract over, over a you know, certain amount of time, that, that's really going to be the inspected earnings. If you're invested 100% within the indexed account, it's going to be that in between that 3 to 4% net. And uh, there's great short-term performance, I should add. So even, even if you do get out in one year and the S&P didn't go that well, at the same time, you're going to get trued up to that minimum to that minimum growth rate, and there's still going to be a positive return. It's not going to be optimal, but it, you're not going to be losing anything on the on the investment. So you'll be you'll be above water. Right. So we're talking about a typical expected return that's above the yield of bonds in the current environment, and with a floor that's above Treasuries with no downside. Correct. You can see why I'd be excited about including something like this in in our portfolio. How do you go about, you know, selecting carriers, the actual policy that you're going to use? What sort of criteria are you looking for? There's various factors here. We perform a certain level of diligence on any carrier that we use. I mean, number one, we want good good credit ratings, right? So we want to use an A-plus rated carrier. We're going to want a high Comdex rating. That's from a zero to 100 ranked. I, I won't get into Comdex too too much, but it's basically a life insurance relative ranking system. We're, we're, we're going to want that to be relatively high compared to the rest of the industry. Also, look, they have to have a suitable product selection that fits the client criteria. I mean, I mean that's huge. Certain carriers kind of cater to different product needs or specialize in different product types. And so that's a big one. The, uh, the uh, pricing has to be there. We're going to analyze 
internalize that. I mean, it's got to have competitive pricing, but it also needs to be sustainably priced so that it can handle stress testing. Some carriers, they'll have a product that illustrates great at a five and a half percent growth rate. But then let's say if we assume a lower growth rate, let's say we say a 4% growth rate, what happens? Does that does that policy fall apart compared to the industry? So we want to make sure that the pricing is not just all smoke and mirrors from that aspect. So you're doing sort of a stress testing there. Exactly. Exactly. We definitely want to stress test these these policies and make sure that there's sound pricing. Another really important factor here is how do they treat their enforced block of business? So is it is it hey all the all the bells and whistles are on the new the new products that come out, but the enforced block kind of just gets left in the dust. So we want to see that they're treating their existing customers as well as potential new customers. And ease of underwriting comes into play here too. So that's a that's another big one. That's a good point because this this is actually an insurance product. Correct. Correct. This is this is when you this is obviously and when you break it down an insurance product and underwriting is a is a necessity. Those are just some of the factors that are involved in ultimately selecting a carrier. Well, it sounds like a lot of diligence is done and and you've been successful in finding a carrier carriers that fit the bill as far as checking the boxes. Given that that there is a solution here, who should consider this? Well, yeah, I, I think it's important to note that we've we've traditionally utilized the strategy as more of a cash management play. If there's cash that doesn't need immediate use, that's uh, not earmarked to be used for something within the next year, then going into a product with a minimum net rate of roughly 1% and maximum upside with a 6.5% rough rough net rate is it's it's I mean pretty much a no-brainer. But you know, due to the current bond market, the strategy has obviously found additional applicability in replacing a portion of one's bond portfolio to you know, protect against the risk of those bond returns flipping negative. Having said that, who should consider it? I'd say any individuals, households, or even, even uh, businesses with cash that's sitting on the sideline for whatever reason, and pretty much earning next to nothing. Once again, with the caveat that this cash is not being earmarked or set aside for an immediate investment. Or, or those, those same entities would have bond holdings with low yields and greater risk of negative returns. Again, the purpose of the strategy is to replace low yielding investments with a strategy that provides potential greater returns and downside protection. And additionally, if someone looking to maybe diversify or utilize life insurance as an asset class with a shorter to midterm investment horizon. Okay. Well, that's, that's something that struck me. And when we're talking about using it as the fixed income replacement, we've been running with that and, and trying to incorporate it into, you know, client portfolios wherever possible on that, on that fitting into that category of those that are sitting on low yield bond investments. So I think that's really compelling. If you could explain a little bit about who is eligible, what types of accounts can hold this type of insurance? I think this ties into kind of insured versus, versus ownership. So I'll touch on ownership first. Now, there's flexibility here. I mean, this can be owned individually. This can be owned by different types of trusts, such as a family revocable trust. And it can be it can be business owned. Maybe a company sitting on cash requirements that they, that they want to earn a higher return on. I will say for business ownership, there needs to be an insurable interest. And you're going to have to comply with a Section 101J, but absolutely doable and very effective strategy for businesses that are sitting on cash and just looking to replace bond holdings. But basically pertaining to the insured, pretty much anyone from age 18 to 80 are you know, typically eligible. There obviously needs to be an insurable interest and then they also need to medically qualify. So for individually owned or trust owned coverage, you're typically gonna be insuring a husband or wife or maybe both. But let's assume for a second that insurability is an issue there. 
and they can't medically qualify, then you have the option of other family members to insure. I mean, remember the, the, the death benefit is just secondary here. So the actual insured is less relevant compared to policy ownership. So that's always an option to maybe go on another family member. And then for business-owned coverage, the insured is most likely going to be a key person to the business. That way you're justifying the coverage on that, indivi on that individual. And then there's flexibility there as well. If you have multiple key persons and someone can't qualify, you, know, you have someone else to choose from. And then touching on the account aspect of that question, let's say funds are in a qualified retirement account or IRA, then implementing the strategy becomes becomes pretty challenging. Look, there's obviously a taxable event if you distribute money out of those, those accounts to pay for outside life insurance. So you would need to hold the life insurance inside the IRA or the qualified retirement plan. Number one, you're not allowed to own life insurance inside an IRA, so that's out of the question. And then in terms of qualified plans, some do permit you to own life insurance, but the product selection becomes very limited. So although doable, there are obstacles that are really beyond the scope of, I would, I would say, this conversation, but that is that is doable. But for the most part, other than that, if there's money outside of a qualified plan or IRA, so you're not receiving the qualified tax benefits, then those funds can absolutely be applied to the strategy. So you're talking about in your typical family trust account or individual or joint account or just a general corporate account that's not in some, some form of a retirement structure. Correct. I just want to highlight one of the things that you said earlier when you said it's less important who's insured, right? Because again, we're looking at this from an investment standpoint, not from an insurance standpoint. So we're not really trying to buy a bunch of life insurance coverage. We're trying to buy an investment. So who is insured is much less relevant here as long as we have somebody that is insurable and it's the owner that matters that's putting the money into the policy and, and has ownership of the policy. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct and a, and a great way to put it. What, what are some other considerations or potential issues that can arise when implementing this strategy? Or are there any downsides? With any strategy of this type, there's going to be obviously considerations. It's not gonna, it's not gonna be a fit for everyone. To go through some, well, as we touched on earlier, you need to go through medical underwriting. This is still life insurance. There's an element of coverage and the insured needs to be underwritten. I, I do want to note that our firm has fine-tuned this process where we're, we're going to order all pertinent me uh, medical records in-house as well as help schedule and coordinate the exam and labs for the client. And once we bring all that in, we can then negotiate with the carrier on the client's behalf to secure an offer. This, this, this is unique in that it leaves us controlling the process to a degree so that we can really provide better service and manage client expectations better. But, and then, and then there's another potential avenue here, which is e-underwriting or streamlined underwriting, which is really gaining popularity in the industry and is becoming way more prevalent. And e-underwriting is basically no exam in labs and no medical records analysis needed, assuming the insured fits into certain criteria. So those parameters are somewhat limited. They're starting to expand as this becomes more popular and more carriers are taking this on, but that, that, that is the potential if the insured fits into the, those, those, those parameters. I'd say another consideration is this policy needs to be managed routinely, similar to a client's portfolio would be. We, we're going to need to track the performance. And this isn't a set it and forget it strategy, so it definitely needs routine management to make sure we're on track. And then another consideration is, look, this, this is not an optimal long-term investment. There's the optionality to keep this in force, obviously, and you're going to get anywhere from three to 4% in the long, on the long-term. But if the client's ultimate goal in using life insurance is to take advantage of the tax deferred growth 
and let it cook for 20 years and then take out systematic withdrawals, you know, maybe as more of a supplemental retirement play, there's much better suited products on the market that are going to fit that need. Now, those products, however, are going to forego short-term performance, the, the increased liquidity and the downside protection. But, but no, but there's, but, so that's one thing to consider is that if you have a long-term investment and that's how you want to use life insurance, this, this isn't the style product you would want to do. And then look, the last thing, the last thing I'd really want to maybe mention here is in terms of considerations is that the cap rates and credit rate are not guaranteed. So they can be lowered at carrier discretion, but at the same time, a couple points on this. One, we always have optionality to leave the contract. There's, there's that liquidity. We, and we manage these policies r routinely. So if, if we get three years out and the carrier has lowered cap rates enough, which, which they don't like doing, by the way, we can, you know, we can exit the policy and have a positive return. And then two, we tend to deal with carriers that don't employ death by a thousand cuts. So if they do have to make some sort of reduction, they're not going to do it monthly. They're going to do one reduction over a longer time horizon. And, and just to, to clarify for everybody, when you talk about cap rates, you're talking about the maximum return that they'll allow in the policy? Yes, correct. I think that's an important point that you made is that whether if any of those terms change, you always have the liquidity and the ability to exit the policy and, and choose a different investment. So the, the power is in the hands of the investor. That's correct. Yep. But now the, the, you talked about the crediting rates changing, but they are, they are locked in for certain periods of time, aren't they? They are, yes. Yeah. So if you have any money invested in the index account strategy, then yeah, there's, there's, there's a one-year lock. So once you're, once you, so basically once your money gets swept into that index account and you leave it in there for one year, that, that cap rate can't change for that, for that one year. Okay. So I, I write out that year. I see if they're making a change at the end of the year and I have a decision point. Do I want to stay in the policy? Do I want to look for something else? Precisely. I mean, the first thing we'd want to do is we have a you know, conversation with the clients figure out who this may apply to and we thoroughly discuss this option in and out make sure they understand the you know benefits and potential risks and determine if this is in their best interest and then if the client is on board we're going to get that client into underwriting the policy illustration means means absolutely nothing until we secure an offer so we're going to want to get that done and then we're going to apply for coverage and we and look we can apply for coverage hand in hand with the underwriting process or we can wait until after depending on the specific case after that we're going to coordinate the funding there's a transfer of assets that needs to be done or any necessary account or entity set up we can help help facilitate that process and then we're going to fund the policy after that which is paying paying the premium and then from there, it's, it's, it's a matter of managing the policy with routine policy reviews. And that, that preferably is coinciding with the overall portfolio review. I love how it's been able to fit in with client portfolios that we've been able to execute this already. So I'm looking forward to being able to get it more broadly implemented because it's certainly a great solution for the problem that we're facing right now. And that's the, the you know, sort of less appealing investment that's available in traditional fixed income. So I appreciate all the work that you've done and the information that you've shared on this, Chris, with a, a very compelling alternative to fixed income investments. I appreciate being here and being able to discuss the strategy. And we, we look forward to implementing these solutions going forward. And, provide, and, and I just want to say we, we love seeking out these you know, unique alternative investment solutions and performing diligence on them and then applying them to the uh, appropriate client fact patterns. And it's, re it's, it's really one of the aspects that sets Censure apart from industry counterparts.
Well, I appreciate your efforts. Thank you very much for all the information. Guys, this sounds like a very, very powerful strategy. If somebody's listening to this and they want to learn more, who should they be contacting? They should contact their advisor at Centura, or if they don't have an advisor at Centura yet, they can contact our main number at 858-771-9500, or of course, visit our website at centurawealth.com. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Chris, I'm so glad you're on the show today. Thank you for being here. David, of course, thank you for bringing him on and running such a great interview with such amazing information. I mean, it sounds very powerful. And I, I think that a lot of people can take advantage of that, that service and uh, see some real change in their portfolio. But our last thank you always goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when they come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results. 